Paula Alera, a dreamy 13-year-old, stood in the lobby of her East Harlem housing project on a chilly January afternoon in 1991 and pushed her family's apartment number on the intercom box. The girl, arriving home from school, nodded close to the speaker and said, Soyo, it's me. Upstairs, her mother Olga buzzed her in by pushing the button to unlock the lobby door. She glanced at the clock, 4.45 p.m. Paula had stayed late at school and it was dark outside. The routine interaction was the last that Olga Elera, a Colombian who, with her family, had immigrated to New York just seven months earlier, would have with her precious daughter. The girl passed through the lobby door and got into an elevator, but she didn't make it to the 30th floor apartment. Her mother quickly sensed trouble, and she frantically searched the neighborhood for Paula, a slightly built, fair-skinned child with a mop of curly black hair. Three hours later, a man walking his dog noticed a prone figure on a pedestrian promenade a few steps from the East River. It was Paula's lanky body. She had non-consensual sex, was strangled, and stabbed three times near her heart. Her lifeless body had been redressed and then dumped more than ten blocks from her building along the busy FDR Drive beneath the Wards Island Bridge. When she was killed, the child was bearing the totems of her adolescence, a new kids on the block watch on her wrist, and in her pocket, a piece of chalk that she had used to draw hopscotch grids. The medical examiner noted curious elongated marks on her thighs during the autopsy. It seemed the girl had resisted the non-consensual sex, and her attacker had pried her legs apart with such force that he left bruises on her thighs that mirrored the shape of his fingers. She was beautiful and very delicate, her mother later said. She wanted to be a lawyer. She was painting dreams. She was a young girl with many plans for the future, her uncle Guillermo Espino told reporters. She was very intelligent, very advanced for her age. She thought like an older person. She was very happy here because she loved English. She said, Uncle, I love it here more and more every day. The murder of a 13-year-old girl should be big news in almost any city at most any time. But New York in 1991 barely noticed the horrendous East Harlem crime because the city was awash in violence then collateral damage of the crack cocaine scourge that had begun in 1984. From 1990 until 1992, more than 2,000 murders were reported in the city each year. Every day, an average of six bodies turned up in the five boroughs of New York City, most of them in poor, minority neighborhoods like East Harlem, the South Bronx, and East New York, Brooklyn. Few of those cases garnered much attention. Instead, the media stampeded to the more upmarket crimes, affluent victims in more photogenic locations, such as a stockbroker attacked while jogging in Central Park or tourists slain during a subway robbery. Police investigated the murder of Paula Alera, of course, but it was not a marquee case. High-profile crimes are often assigned scores of detectives who are allowed to lavish countless hours on the investigation. For example, when the son of a media mogul was killed in New York a few years after Paula was murdered, the new mayor of New York, Rudolph Giuliani, solemnly vowed that hundreds and hundreds of cops would be assigned to the case. But the young Colombian immigrant did not rate such star treatment. A man's pubic hair was collected and stored as evidence from the child's body. But without pressure from the media or politicians, Paula Elera became a low-priority murder victim. Her case was destined to languish in limbo, unsolved for most of the 1990s. By the mid-1990s, the tide had turned on crime in New York overall. Still, in the housing projects of East Harlem, 
the carnage continued with a series of seemingly unrelated cases of non-consensual sex and murders against attractive, light-skinned black or Hispanic teenagers. In 1994, a 15-year-old girl was accosted at knife point. The case established a modus operandi for the attacker, who would repeat it many times over the next four years. He approached the teenager from behind and directed her to a remote spot, where she was blindfolded with a piece of her own clothing, forced to strip, then sodomized. The 15-year-old victim survived to describe her attacker as a clean-cut young man with a muscular build who had an excellent opinion of himself. He told the victim she should be grateful to have non-consensual sex with such a handsome fellow. He told me I was lucky, the victim said. A few years later, on September 10, 1997, firefighters were called to a rooftop fire at the George Washington Houses on East 104th Street. Veteran firefighter Fred Svinnies later described what he found there. I came upon what I thought at the time was a piece of rubbish or furniture burning, Zvinnies said. Then he noticed a bare breast and realized it was a person. What was left of her? After calling a supervisor, Zvinnies said, I stepped back and looked at her. I was amazed that somebody could do something like this. The victim, who had been clubbed and choked, was identified by an ankle bracelet gift from her mother as Johannes Castro, 19, whose family had immigrated to New York from the Dominican Republic. Castro, who had a young daughter, studied computer science at a community college in the Bronx. We came here looking for a better life for our children, her mother, Paula Castro, would later say. Like Paula Ilera, the murder of Castro went unnoticed, yet another dead teen from an East Harlem immigrant family. Seven months later, in April 1998, a 13-year-old girl was sodomized in the same neighborhood. The young victim, just four foot nine, escaped the fate of Ilera and Castro. She told police she screamed in pain while being sodomized. He told me to be quiet and take it like a woman, the child told police. Two months later, on June 2nd, Rashida Washington was found robbed, sodomized, and strangled in a 15th floor stairwell of an East 112th Street housing project. The body, its naked torso covered by a shirt, had been propped up against a wall in a seated position. Like the earlier victims, Washington, a fashion student who worked at a clothing boutique, was petite, weighing just 100 pounds. She had lived with her father, Gregory, in the same housing project as the first victim, Paula Elera. Washington was murdered three days after her 18th birthday. That fall, two more adolescents were sodomized in the vicinity, a 15-year-old on September 25th and a 14-year-old on November 16th. The second victim said her attacker had an odd demand. He told me to act like I loved him, she told the police. Those two teens escaped alive probably because they did not get a good look at the attacker before they were blindfolded. Even as these parallel cases piled up, police made no public announcement that a serial murderer might be preying on teenage girls in East Harlem. The victim's parents would later accuse both the police and the media of giving short shrift to the case decisions, they said, that were based on the victim's lack of status, ethnic minorities from a poor neighborhood. It's because they're black and Hispanic, said Gregory Washington. Rashida's father. It's because it's all above 96th Street. Let there be a white girl, and it's solved within days. His daughter's murder had rated four paragraphs in the New York Post. The New York Times had ignored it altogether. It's a subjective exercise to compare media attention given to cases based on social status. But when Brian Watkins, a tourist from Utah, had been stabbed to death in a Manhattan subway on September 2, 1990, his murder had been covered with hundreds of stories in the New York newspapers. When Paula Alera met a similar fate four months later, the Times published two stories.
DNA testing was first used in a criminal investigation in England in 1986. It was in limited use in the United States by the following year. But it was still a nascent forensic science in 1991 when young Paula was murdered. That had changed by 1998. By then, DNA was widely regarded as the most important investigatory breakthrough since the fingerprint, and the East Harlem cases would bear that out. Tissue samples had been collected over the years from murder suspects. Prosecutors ordered DNA tests on at least five men suspected in the attacks, including two who had been picked out of police lineups by non-consensual sex victims. In the 1990s, there is a limited archive of DNA samples on file because routine testing of felons had not yet begun on a large scale. But a critical development in the East Harlem cases came in the fall of 1998, when New York police criminalists compared semen evidence from the Rashida Washington murder and two other cases of non-consensual sex in that neighborhood. The tests determined that the same perpetrator was responsible for the three crimes. Detectives were finally confident that a serial criminal was preying upon Harlem teenagers. The police brass formed a small task force of detectives to find the man. Police distributed a wanted poster that included a sketch of the serial attacker based upon descriptions from the non-consensual sex victims. A few days after the flyer went up in East Harlem, a telephone tipster suggested the detectives take a close look at a young man known as Ace who lived on the 19th floor of Paula Alera's building. Cops soon established Ace's real name, Aaron Key, and the name rang a bell. Before she was killed in 1991, young Paula had been seen entering the elevator at the same time as a young man. Detectives had talked to the man back then, and he gave his name as Aaron Warford. He admitted that he had ridden up the elevator with the girl on the afternoon she was murdered, but he said he got off on the 19th floor and Paula continued up. That was the last the police saw of Aaron Warford. But the unique first name surfaced again in Johannes Castro's murder investigation six years later. Telephone records revealed that Johannes had exchanged dozens of phone calls with a man named Aaron Key in the days before she was killed. Police spoke with Key, who said Johannes Castro had been a friend of his girlfriend, Jacqueline. He explained the flurry of phone calls by saying the two women had been planning a shopping trip on the day she was killed. Police interviewed the girlfriend, who confirmed Key's account. Only later did police realize that Aaron Warford and Aaron Key were the same man. Warford was his father's surname, Key his mother's. Aaron Key had links to two of the three victims of a suspected serial killer. He was the last person known to have seen the first victim alive, and he was linked to an extensive phone dialogue with the second victim in the days before she died. The coincidence was extraordinary. But if Aaron Key was a serial murderer, he was one pressed from the Ted Bundy mold. Ace Key was personable, intelligent, reasonably articulate, and clean-cut, like Bundy, the infamous American serial killer in the late 1970s. Key was born on September 18, 1973. He spent most of his childhood in East Harlem and lived with relatives in the same building as Paula Alera in 1991. Known as a big-talking charmer, Key was adept at computers. He claimed to be a rap producer, although there is little evidence that he did any work in that field. He was not physically imposing, at just five foot eight, but like Bundy, he was a fairly handsome man. He'd had just one arrest for robbery in 1990, but he had spent little or no time locked up. Yet, neighbors said Key had a sick side. He habitually peered through the peepholes of women in his building, and he often traipsed around with a portable video camera, trying clumsily to get shots up skirts. In the September 1998 non-consensual sex case, 
the assailant left behind a black FUBU cap and a gray sweatshirt. A laundry tag in the garment led police to a dry cleaner near Key's building, whose client list included Aaron Key's mother, Cynthia. Detail after detail pointed to Aaron Key as the leading suspect, and authorities believed a test of his DNA would prove that he was the killer. But Key had no DNA on file since mandatory DNA testing of accused felons would not begin in New York until 2000. And in the 1990s, acquiring a sample was not as simple as hauling a suspect in and running a swab across an inner cheek. DNA tests were regarded as invasive, and a sample had to be authorized by a judge based upon probable cause. Despite the circumstantial evidence, detectives knew the elevator ride, phone calls, and laundry tag would not convince a judge to compel Key to surrender a bit of his spittle for a DNA sample. So the police were forced to turn to Plan B. First, they tried tailing Key, waiting for him to spit or discard chewing gum. This quickly proved impractical. On February the 8th, 1999, cops got a break when Key was arrested for stealing a computer hard drive. With no mandatory DNA testing of arrestees yet on the law books in New York, police resorted to trickery to try to get a genetic sample. A female detective disguised as a doctor in a white hospital smock asked Key to give a saliva sample for a routine tuberculosis test. The cop pushed paperwork at the prisoner, hoping he would sign a release form. But Key took the time to read the fine print on the document, and he balked when he saw a line referring to DNA analysis. He said he was a practicing Jehovah's Witness and that it was against his faith to participate in any form of medical treatment. He suddenly got religious, as one cop later put it. Key now knew what the police wanted from him, and he tried to make sure they wouldn't get it. After his meal that evening, he tore his paper cup into bits and flushed it down the toilet. He then placed his cellmate's cup on his meal tray, hoping to throw off investigators. But cops were a step ahead. Shortly after Key was arrested, he had spent time in a group-holding cell with several other men. Attendants had served them cups of water, and detectives tracked down the cups in a waste paper basket and delivered them for DNA testing. Within a couple of days, the results confirmed that a sample taken from the lip of a cup from the police holding cell contained the same DNA as that of the East Harlem murderer. By the time the test results were complete, Aaron Key had been released without bail on the misdemeanor computer theft charge. Cops learned that he had gone to Brownsville, Brooklyn, and picked up his 16-year-old girlfriend, Angelique Stallings, for what her parents thought was a Valentine's Day date. Instead, Key and Stallings boarded a Florida-bound bus in Newark, New Jersey. Detectives feared Stallings faced the same fate as the other victims. After arriving in South Florida, Key twice phoned another girlfriend in New York. His fugitive status as a suspected serial killer had made the news by then. The second girlfriend called police with a tip that Key was staying at the Miami Sun Hotel, two blocks from the beach on Northwest First Avenue in downtown Miami. Two New York detectives hurried there and staked out the hotel. When they spotted Key and Stallings strolling inside, a Miami-Dade SWAT team was called in. They found Key and Stallings hiding under a bed on the sixth floor. After Key was safely in custody, Joseph Resnick, a ranking New York police officer, told reporters, Aaron Key is every young lady's worst nightmare. Apparently, his girlfriend didn't know how dangerous he was and what kind of danger she was in, said Delrish Moss of the Miami-Dade Police. She had no clue he was wanted for those crimes. Key clammed up when detectives tried to question him about the East Harlem crimes. Still, police gleefully watched and listened from behind a two-way mirror when they allowed Stallings into the interview room for what the couple thought was a private goodbye. When Stallings demanded to know why he had committed the crimes, 
Key said he had bugged out and had a sickness. After a four-month legal battle, Key was extradited to New York and faced trial on 22 felony counts and four non-consensual sex charges and the murders of Paula Elera, Johannes Castro, and Rashida Washington. DNA evidence linked Key to six of the seven cases. In the seventh murder of Alera, he was implicated by pubic hair that had been found on the victim and saved in an evidence room for nine years. Prosecutors John Irwin and Richard Plansky presented a devastating barrage of testimony and DNA evidence against Key at trial in the fall of 2000. They called 130 prosecuting witnesses, including the two non-consensual sex victims who recounted for an astonished courtroom audience Key's lucky and love me comments during the violent acts. But one defense witness stole the show, Key himself, who insisted to his attorney that he be the first defense witness to stand. Over two days of testimony, Key giggled like a schoolgirl, cried like a baby, and expressed fury that authorities would dare prosecute him. His monologue, largely uninterrupted by the judge, the prosecutors, or his attorneys, covered pop culture, narcotics, rap music, jail food, and his deep thoughts on the criminal justice system. Like many of his victims' loved ones watching from the gallery with slack jaws, Key spun a bizarre tale explaining how he had come to be charged with brutal serial violence against young women. He claimed police had framed him to cover up a medical examiner's scheme to harvest and sell human organs. He explained that his DNA was planted in what he called genetic shuffling. The jury didn't buy it, and when the foreman announced a guilty verdict, the courtroom erupted in cheers and cries of, Yes. A few minutes later, as he was being led away to await sentencing, Key scowled toward the gallery and spat a profane curse at the entire assembly. Outside of court, some relatives of Key's victims charged up to a gaggle of reporters and demanded to know why the press had largely ignored the attacks as they were happening. Where were they in the beginning? One man shouted at the reporters as friends restrained him. At sentencing a month later, in January 2001, relatives of his victims got a chance to address Aaron Key. I hope you experience what it's like not to be able to sleep, to eat, to walk, to breathe, to not have a moment of peace, thinking of my daughter's suffering at the time of her death, said Olga Alera, mother of his first murder victim. I will never learn to live without my daughter, who I brought to this country in search of the American dream. The father of Key's third murder victim, Gregory Washington, tried to engage the killer with eye contact. Look at me, Washington said. Just once, turn around. Others in the gallery began to shout, turn around, but Key refused to meet the father's gaze. When his turn to speak came at the sentencing hearing, Key had lost the bravado from his trial. He began to cry and muttered, I'm sorry. With that, a male cousin of Johannes Castro let out an angry roar and tried to leap over the bar to attack Key. The defendant was hustled out of the room for his own protection. After a 15-minute interlude to calm the gallery, Justice Joan Sadolnik passed a sentence saying, I don't know what to say to someone who has no soul, no conscience, no morality, no heart. She sent him away forever. Three life sentences without the possibility of parole for each of the three murders, plus an additional 400 years for the four non-consensual sex cases. He won't be missed, cops said. He was a demon, said Detective Mike Flacco. He just needed to be put away. The prosecution of Aaron Key was a turning point in New York for the use of DNA evidence. Key's defense team sought to have the seizure of his DNA declared illegal, but Judge Sadolnik upheld the use of the evidence, 
even if it had been obtained through police skullduggery when Key was still just a suspect. After his conviction, George Goltzer, Key's attorney, told the press, The public needs to be aware that this court found that police officers may follow you around and without any warning or a judge's approval, take your bodily fluids. But the Key case became an example of the urgent need for a DNA database. Had Key's DNA profile been on file from his 1990 robbery arrest, some of his victims surely would have been spared by an earlier apprehension. By the time Key was sentenced, legislators in New York and many other states had mandated DNA testing for those arrested in connection with violent crimes. Since then, testing has been expanded to include most felony arrests, both violent and nonviolent, and some jurisdictions have begun to test those arrested for misdemeanors. Most DNA headlines today concern exonerations, not successful prosecutions, which was a subplot in the key story. Two men were falsely implicated in the key non-consensual sex cases when victims picked them out of police lineups. One was a known sex offender who had been recently paroled. The other was seen near the scene of a non-consensual sex event just before and just after it happened. Curiously, he had changed clothing in between. The men likely would have faced prosecution had DNA evidence not implicated Aaron Key for their being incorrectly suspected of committing crimes. Linda Fairstein, a longtime Manhattan sex crimes prosecutor who left that field to become a novelist, said the key case proved DNA's value from both a prosecution and defense point of view. There's no question that any one of our experienced sex crime prosecutors could have convicted either man, she told reporters. That's very frightening.